Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45. And while you're turning there, I just want to say I'm very thankful to David Strain for some of the, many of the insights I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. Mark chapter 6, uh, beginning with verse 45. Hear now the word of the Lord. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. So they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, astounded, excuse me, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Uh, that you have given your word to us. We know that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we pray that you would plant that word deep into our hearts, that we might know you, uh, Father, that we might walk with you, know you as our God, and we would be your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, I think it's interesting reading this uh, account of Jesus that we have sort of incorporated into our language this phrase of walking on water. You know, we might use it maybe this way. Someone might say, well, I'm not saying my boss expects a lot of me, but I swear he expects me to be able to walk on water. In other words, he expects me to do the impossible. He gives me a project. It should take a month, and he gives me two days to do it. Or maybe you say, well, Sally, she could do anything you give to her. I swear she could walk on water. You know, and so we use that phrase and we throw it around a lot. But when it comes to Jesus literally walking on water, you know, some scholars really work very hard to try to explain that away. And, and actually, as we've been looking at the, the miracles of Jesus through the book of Mark, um, it's, I've encountered those who have made comments trying to explain away the miracles. And the walking on water is no different. There are some scholars that want to say, well, Jesus was really just walking on a sandbar. Or, you know, actually he was, the, the boat that the disciples were in was much closer to the shore than they realized. And Jesus was just walking along the beach and they didn't realize it in all the fog and stuff. Or, or one of my favorite ones was uh, a scientist who said, well, he really believes that there was a cold spell in that particular region, in that particular time. And there was ice under the layer of water and he, Jesus was walking on ice. Now, we're not going to take the time to dissect all those different arguments, but I will tell you this. Oftentimes it takes way greater faith to believe somebody who's coming from a naturalistic point of view that wants to get rid of God than it does just to believe what the text says. And uh, this morning, I want us to look at what the text says and to understand what Mark wants us to see about Jesus, who he is and what that means for our lives. And I want us to see several things. First of all, that this is a story about revelation. 
uh, revelation. Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. That's probably the main point. But also, it's a story of rebuke and a story of rescue. And so let's look at our text this morning, if we could. Uh, first of all, at this being a story of revelation. Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples, uh, not just in his deity, but also, I would argue, in his humanity as well. Uh, let's look, first of all, at that in his humanity, since the bulk of the, the text seems to be dealing with him and his, hum, and his deity. But his humanity is emphasized really at the beginning of the text, where Jesus sends his disciples to go to the other side of the shore. He stays and he dismisses the crowd. And after he dismisses the crowd, what does he do, kids? The Bible tells us that he goes up to the mountain, and while he's on the mountain, he goes up there to pray. Verse 46, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, remember, Jesus is the divine Son of God, without beginning, without end, who has dwelt in the glory and the blessedness of fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit for, for all eternity. But now, here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he, 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 um, we, we, we meet the Son, who is fully man, a man who needs to pray, a man who goes up on the mountain to pray. As God, he doesn't need to pray, but as man, he, he could not neglect to pray. He had to pray. And, and it's interesting, if you go through Mark's gospel, to trace the, the times where it tells us that Jesus prayed. And, and it really, if you look at it, it shows sort of a, a comprehensive pattern of prayer. Um, there's actually three different accounts. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 35, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he's just getting in, he's doing miracles, he's preaching the gospel, and what does he do? Even early on in his ministry, he goes out and he finds a desolate place, a place that's quiet before anybody else is up, and he goes and he prays. And it's not until his disciples find him that then he stops and then he goes on with the ministry. And then here in the middle of his ministry, in, in Mark chapter 6, Verse 46, he, he prays once again, alone, up on the mountain. And then, if you recall, in chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes his disciples and he tells most of the disciples, you stay here, and he takes Peter, James, and John, and goes a little bit farther, and then he tells them even, you stay here, and then he goes even a little bit further, and he goes and he prays once again, alone. I thought it's interesting. I'm not saying that Jesus never prayed in front of his disciples, but no wonder his disciples came to him and says, teach us to pray. You know, um, because it did seem like Jesus would pull away for times of prayer. And Mark wants us to see Jesus, a man of prayer, whose humanity demanded that kind of purposeful, disciplined communion with God in prayer at every point in his life, in his ministry. You know, I'm sure Jesus prayed more than just three times over the period of his life. But Mark tells us this just to show us sort of the, the fullness of the need of his prayer throughout his life and ministry. And of course, if our sinless Savior needed to pray, you know where I'm going to go next with this, right? Then how could any of us who follow him in our daily combat with indwelling sin ever afford to neglect to pray? We need to pray, brothers and sisters. We need that. It's not that God is doing that as some burden like Pharaoh who, who tells the people that they need to make bricks and at first he gives them straw, but then after a while, to be more mean, he takes the straw away. And God's not putting that burden on us. He knows that is a blessed thing for us to have that means 
of grace to come to him to pray. And so Jesus is a man. But, but Mark is going to reveal to us that Jesus is more. Jesus is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. And that's what the bulk of the story is about, about Jesus' deity. So he sends his disciples off across the sea and uh, by themselves, and while he's on land praying, and then Jesus sees them struggling uh, badly to make, a, uh, to make progress across the lake. Now you've got to remember, these are experienced fishermen. These are people who live on the lake. They understand these kind of things. And so they're not easily intimidated or anything by these things, but they are struggling because the, the wind is strong and it is blowing hard. And then in verse 48, we read about the fourth watch of the night. Uh, that'd be about three o'clock in the morning, okay? So uh, they have most likely been battling this wind for quite some time. And Jesus comes walking out to the disciples on the water. Now, we read something interesting at the end of verse 48. Look at that. It said that he meant to pass by them. Now, that's really an odd comment if you think about the fact that if Jesus is on the mountain praying, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was actually praying for his disciples, but Mark doesn't tell us, but you know, he's praying and he sees them struggling, so he goes to them. So why would he want to pass by them if he's going to help them? Well, Mark tells us this about Jesus to, to clue us in to the real significance of what's happening. You know, this phrase, to pass by, would, uh, was used in the Old Testament in critical times when God was revealing himself dramatically to his people in what's called a, a theophany. Kids, that, that, a theophany is like an appearance of God. You know, remember God's a spirit, but there are occasions where God would appear to people. Sometimes it was in a burning bush. Sometimes it was as a, a, an angel wrestling with someone. You know, there were different theophanies, different occurrences. But probably the most famous uh, was Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, feel free to turn there if you'd like. And verse 18, and Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's just prayed in verse 18. He says, please show me your glory. God, I want to see who you are. Can you show me who you are? I've been following you. I've been leading your people. Show me your glory. And in verse 19, it says, and he, that is God, said, I will make my goodness pass before you. In other words, I'll make my goodness pass in front of you. Okay? And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay, so, so God does pass before Moses and shows himself to him. Another occurrence is in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. And this is where God appears to the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah is sort of hiding, and, uh, and God appears to him. And uh, we read in this text that the Lord brings a whole lot of different natural phenomenons before him. And, and for example, the first thing he sent was a strong wind. I mean, so strong that it caused the mountain to, to begin to crumble, right? And God says, but I was not in that wind. And then he sends an earthquake, but the Lord says, but I was not in that earthquake. And then the Lord sends fire, and he says, but I was not in that fire. And then he sends a low whisper. Kids, that's sort of what your parents try to, are trying to convince you to do in church. Whisper. Don't talk in your outside voice, right? Whisper. There's this low whisper. And it is in that whisper that we read 
the Lord passed by. The Lord was in that whisper, verse 11. So it was in these theophanies that God passed by in order to reveal himself to his servants, not to leave them in ignorance about who he was, but to show himself to them. God was proclaiming who he was. Now that's what's happening as Jesus was planning to walk by his disciples on that stormy night. Jesus was going to pass by them to show them who he is. You see, they didn't understand as they ought. So Jesus comes to show who he is, that they might believe and they might trust him. Now, oftentimes when we think of God being present with his people, especially in some of the music that we use in the church today, it's really sort of sentimental. It's, it's almost like full of warm fuzzies, you know? Let me just read you uh, words to a song that I'm sure all of you have sung at one time in your life. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. There's sort of this, you know, sentimentality of, oh, Jesus, just come to me. Let me reach out. Let me touch you. Let me hear you. Now, I don't, I don't mean to impugn the motives of the ears of the person who wrote those words or anything, but sometimes it can be sort of sentimental, like we're just wanting this experience or this feeling. And yet, when you look at Scripture, when God comes and He appears to people, it's a totally different type, kind of picture. Think about Isaiah 6, uh, where God's train fills the temple and the seraphim, that the angels uh, worship the Lord as they see him there. And the house, it says, was filled with smoke, that the foundations of the threshold shook. And Isaiah is there, and he's watching all of this. He sees this vision, and what's his reply? In Isaiah 6, 5, we read, Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and go back, if you would, to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, that we just looked at, uh, where, where Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, I'll do that. You know, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay, now let me read the rest of the text. It quaint, paints quite a picture. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see, what a, a all striking picture of God. You know, as He comes to people, He comes in His magnificence and His greatness. God says, I am so great. If you saw me in my face, you couldn't handle it. You would die. But I'll let you see my backside. I'll just let you catch a glimpse as I'm passing by. 
That's how great I am. So, Jesus likewise shows himself to his disciples in such a way that verse 50 tells us they were terrified. Actually, the Greek says something like this. They were very exceedingly afraid. Now, that's not really great English. They were very exceedingly afraid. That's a little awkward. So we just say they were terrified. But that's probably sort of an understatement to say that they were terrified. They were incredibly terrified. And, and who could blame them? I mean, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. They've been pulling oars all night. No doubt they're exhausted. They're cold. They're wet. They're frustrated and all that. But all of a sudden, as they're experiencing all these things amongst the howling wind, out of the darkness comes this figure walking on the water. Uh, effortlessly across the surface of the water and it was a terrifying sight to be sure and no wonder they thought they were seeing a ghost because no person could do that now we don't have the time but there are a boatload no pun intended a boatload of Old Testament scriptures that talk about the Lord God Yahweh walking on the water and the winds and uh, no doubt those some of those passages could have come back to their mind but verse 50 says, But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now the phrase that he uses, it is I, in the Greek is ego eimi. Okay? And the phrase could mean it's me, uh, as it's translated, but also, and more typically, it's used to mean I am. Okay? Which is translating the divine name of God that we oftentimes see in the Old Testament where Yahweh would say, I am who I am. And if you think back to the Old Testament occurrences of God showing himself to his servant, for example, Moses at the burning bush, you know, it was accompanied by the same kind of instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples in the boat. Fear not. Do not be afraid. I am is with you. And, the, and Jesus says similar thing. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I am. Do not be afraid. And so Jesus was not simply saying, don't be afraid, I'm here. Rather, he was saying, don't be afraid. The, the great glory of Yahweh, of I am himself, the Lord of the wind and the waves, I am here. Whatever else the disciples didn't understand, and there was, I think, a lot that they probably didn't get, they got this much, that the glory of the Divine Son revealed to them in this moment was far, far more terrifying than anything that might happen to them as a result of the winds that were blowing in the boat that night. You know, far too often, uh, I think, for us as Christians, we find it hard to comprehend Jesus' true humanity. I think we probably have a tendency to think more of Him in terms of His deity than his humanity. So it's hard for us sometimes to understand, you know, uh, his limitations, his weaknesses, those kind of things. We struggle with that. But yet at the same time, I would suggest that we also struggle to comprehend the overwhelming dread that the disciples experienced in the presence of Jesus when they caught a glimpse of his divine glory. Probably because we confess, while we confess Christ's deity with our mouths as a part of our faith, in reality, most of us uh, think our God is a tame God. Really, if you think about it. You know, we, we have so domesticated God that our Jesus could never pose any kind of threat to our comfort or our ease 
Oh yes, he might bring some trials into our lives, but we don't see him in the great power and all and glory in which uh, he is worthy. And so what happens is we take stories like this and we end up sort of spiritualizing them and we see them as an illustration of, of how the, the way that Jesus calms the storms of our lives uh, instead of seeing the point that Mark really wants us to see. And namely, that is the being in the presence of the man who is the I am, the Lord, is far, far more unnerving than the wind and the waves that are raging all around us, even as the disciples found out that night. So no, however problematic the storm was, when Jesus came to them is when things really got scary for the disciples. And that's why it says that they were greatly astounded. They were astonished. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to check our doctrine of Christ this morning. Not just to make sure that we're professing the Orthodox faith. That's not what I'm saying. We, that is important. But to understand who Jesus Christ really is. To feel the weight and the gravity of His character. To realize that He is not domesticated. He's not merely here to make our lives be much more comfortable. But God who comes to us in the splendor of His glory strikes fear in our hearts and in doing so releases us from the fear of this world and the sins that so easily entangle us. We need to see Jesus as the disciples saw Him. They were terrified, I'm sure, of the winds and the waves, very concerned. But when they saw Jesus Christ, there was much greater terror and fear in their hearts in seeing Him than anything that they were going through. And I wonder if sometimes, if the struggles and the, the, that we have to be too attached to the world, to pursue maybe the sins that we ought not to do, is because we don't have that fear of God. That we fear the things of the world, the people, the circumstances that we are. And we need to see God for who He is that it might break us loose from the hold of the world that it has upon us. But secondly, I want us to see the rebuke that Jesus gives His disciples. A rebuke not only for the disciples, but probably for us as well. The, the whole account that we see here is designed to expose the disciples' unbelieving hearts. They were scared stiff when Jesus appeared in the midst of the waves and the storms, but it wasn't until he got into the boat and the wind stopped that we read that they were utterly astounded. Why? Well, look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, this is uh, not just that they were astonished over the miracles, but they were astonished over Jesus himself. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Um, it, it's, it's really almost like they didn't really understand who Jesus Christ was. You know, and, and that's sort of a, a, a shocking thing to say, really in light of everything that they had experienced. I mean, think about everything that the disciples had gone through up until this point in time. Uh, they had witnessed so much. They had uh, seen Simon Peter's mother-in-law healed of her fever. They had seen a leopard cleansed, a paralytic healed. Let me just stop you. This is not just a list, people. Imagine yourself there 
seeing these things, experiencing things that the disciples did. A man with a withered hand restored to wholeness. A, a legion of demons being cast out. A woman with an issue of blood for 12 years who's made clean and healed. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, and yet she's raised from the dead. Not to mention that they had already been in a storm with Jesus in the boat in the middle of the sea. And Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. And now, just a few hours before this, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves and some fish. And have basketfuls left over. He showed them that he was the greater Moses. That he was greater than the greatest king of Israel, King David, who was the shepherd of his people. They had seen all that. And yet they still didn't get it. They, they don't understand. And, and as we see that in them, we should ask ourselves, how's that even possible? Look at the end of verse 32, or 52, excuse me, 52. Their hearts were hardened. Now that's a very chilling description and very humbling in many ways. Mark's not describing a pagan Pharaoh whose heart is hardened and who refuses to let God's people go. He's not even describing a defiant Israel making their way through the wilderness whose hearts were hardened at Massa and Meribah. This is Jesus' disciples. This includes his inner circle that we always talk about. His disciples who lived with Jesus and watched him every day. They had seen his mighty works. They had listened to his preaching. Mark tells us, that Jesus made known the secrets of the kingdom to these men. Jesus explained to his disciples the meaning of the parables. These were disciples who were called apostles. They weren't just any disciples of Christ, but they were a special group, sort of the elite of the elite of his disciples. And not only that, but they themselves had become preachers and evangelists. They had been sent out and they had done miracles attesting to the power of Jesus Christ. And their hearts were hardened. There's a warning there, brothers and sisters, for us. Those of us who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We ought not to pass over it, but to take this to heart. Namely, that it's possible to be a true believer in Jesus. A disciple in reality. I mean, I'm not talking about somebody who just professes to be a believer, but someone who is genuinely a believer, and yet you can still have your heart heartened for a season. You know, we can be familiar and comfortable with theology and sound doctrine and biblical truth, and yet we can have our hearts hardened. In fact, it may actually be our very exposure to that truth that we enjoy if that truth isn't embraced and believed and rested in, if, if we're not careful to live it out in our lives, if it does not produce good fruit, if it's not obeyed, it may be our very exposure to the truth that leads to a kind of spiritual numbness. We've all heard it the gospel a thousand times before and yet it may be that our sin has not been rooted out or our unbelief has not been mortified or, or put to death 
we have not taken steps to address the issues, even when God in His Word has put His finger upon our hearts and He has shown us by His Holy Spirit the rebelliousness of our hearts. And we may look at that and we may see, well, nothing happens to us. There's no negative consequence so far as we can see. And so we, we gradually we stop trembling at the sound of God's warning. Our hearts cease to be warmed at the display of the gospel makes to us of the beauty of grace. Our consciences stop stirring when sin gets exposed. And really what happens is the word of God becomes little more than spiritual white noise that we sort of hear in the background. Just something that we could really sort of easily begin to tune out. Brothers and sisters, that is a terrifying and terrible condition to be in. How close to shipwrecking our faith we are in in that moment. And perhaps like the disciples in the boat that night, it may actually take terror and astonishment prompted by a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ clothed in the gospel to shake you from that and to bring you back once again to a tender heart and receptivity to his word that you may believe everything that the scripture says to be true. It may take that. Brothers and sisters, as we, as we come to this text, it's a word of revelation of who Jesus is, but it's also a word of rebuke. It's, 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 it's meant to, to expose our hearts and how easily that can happen. I mean, the disciples had every imaginable privilege, access to the Son of God Himself, and still their hearts were hardened. We need to be warned this morning. Don't let this happen to you. Don't let your heart be hardened. But that brings us to the third point, and that is that this is also a story of rescue. You know, a story of rescue. Yes, the disciples' hearts were hardened, but the good news is that their hardness, their hard hearts were not hidden to Jesus Christ, nor did Jesus leave them in their unbelief. Look at verse 48. When Jesus was walking towards the boat, we read, He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now surely Jesus saw the sheer terror on, and, and unbelief written on their faces. And he, and he could have simply just walked right by and says, I'm just going to show them that I am Yahweh, that I am God, and, you know, and, and see if they learn their lesson. He could have done that. But that's not what Christ did. That's not his attitude toward his children. Jesus loves his disciples, their hard hearts notwithstanding. And, and, and so he climbs into the boat, the wind stop, and they arrive safely at the shore, and he rescues them. We have to understand that Jesus is not only awe-inspiring, but he is lovely. He is one in whom his he is majestic, but at the same time, it is co-joined with the sweetest grace. One that clothes himself with mildness and meekness and love. Jesus is exceedingly ready, brothers and sisters, to receive us. Now, Mark isn't minimalizing the need to, to repentance. Okay? I mean, he doesn't tell us that the disciples were grieved and sorry and they plead for Jesus' forgiveness. You know, maybe that did happen. We don't know. That's not Mark's purpose. Mark simply wants us to see that regardless 
of any response in the disciples, Jesus' initiative is what rescued them. Jesus in pursuing them. And how grateful we should be that the, the cardinal truth of the Christian gospel is not that we must believe. I mean, we, we must believe. And it's not that we have repented. Yes, we must repent. But it is that He has first loved us. That He climbs in the boat. That He rescues us. Even in our hard hearts. Even in the midst of our unbelief. He rescues us because He loves us. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. And the more I get to know myself, the more I get to know you, the more I'm baffled even more that he would love us. But he does. And haven't you found that to be true? That sometimes it is the hard rebuke of God's word that awakens us to our spiritual backsliding and our hardness of heart and brings us to repentance. But sometimes it is seeing God in his mercy and his love in Jesus Christ, despite the hardness of our heart, that melts our hard hearts and causes us to sort of spiritually thaw in one sense. I, I love what Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, once said. He said, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. Grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. I love that. It's just like a block of ice that's left out in the sun. And our hard hearts melt just like that before the loving kindness of King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He Backslider, hard-hearted disciple, He loves you. And He is here this morning to rescue you. He is committed to you. And there will be words of rebuke and words of tenderness as He seeks to draw you back and bring you to the far shore safely at last. And He's going to rescue you, but I wonder if you're listening as He calls you this morning. As you hear His overtures of love and grace, as He pleads with you to understand who He is, to tremble before Him. To trust Him, to rest upon Him. And that's the invitation this morning for each and every one of us. Now, some of you may be wandering away. Perhaps for a few days now, you've neglected to seek the Lord. Maybe that's where your heart is. Perhaps there have been those who have cherished secret patterns of willful sin and disobedience. Perhaps you've been like a dog that returns to its vomit. You've been returning to your sin again and again and again. And you know you ought not to do this, but you're indulging yourself and you have felt your heart growing dull and cold and your conscience no longer stinging, but it's now just numb. Well, now the Lord Jesus is inviting you. He's calling you to come back. He wants to climb into the boat and to rescue you, to restore you. The question is, will you hear his voice? Don't harden your hearts, brothers and sisters. Today, if you hear his voice, bend the knee, repent, turn to him, and you will find mercy and grace upon grace in our wonderful Savior. He is the awesome God-man before whom we ought to all tremble and reverent all. But he is the God-man who comes close to us, even our, in our spiritual stupidity. And he rescues us, and we praise him for that.
Amen. Let's pray together or silently this morning. can acknowledge moments as we think back when we didn't see the consequences of our own foolishness and yet you rescued us from it. Our our stupid mistakes, our our willful rebellion would have let us down into dangerous paths and, and yet you spared us. You rescued us from the worst consequences of our own foolishness and sin. And you do it again. And again, because you love your people. Lord, how grateful we are that you love us. That the great central truth, the the foundational truth upon which we rest, upon which all our security is founded, is not what we believe or that we have our doctrine straight. Help us to believe and to get our doctrine straight, but our security rests not really in anything that we say or do or feel or think, but on the glorious truth that Jesus saves. Thank you so much that Jesus climbed into that boat that night and rescued his hard-hearted disciples, not because they were worth rescuing, but because he is a God who loves and saves his people. And thank you that that's still the case. Oh, please help us to turn back to you. Oh, Lord, without delay, right now, today, this very moment, and we ask these things in your precious name. And God's people said, Amen.